You're listening to a sermon preached at Meridian Church. For more information about Meridian Church, visit meridianchurch.com. It is our hope that this sermon is used by the Holy Spirit to minister to you the grace and peace found in Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. And now, here's your sermon audio. Open God's holy word to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Be reading verses 19 through 30. Philippians 2, 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. Not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Father, have mercy on our souls. If we are in any way bored, less impressed, less attentive to your holy word at this point in our journey through Philippians than we have been prior. Forgive us that it's the kind of passage we might be quick to pass over, thinking it has little concern for us. Forgive us that we think so little of it and have so little of it in our bones. Forgive us of our selfishness, our pride, our self-centeredness. Father, by your grace, may we look a bit more like Timothy and Epaphroditus as your Spirit, by your Word, conforms us to the image of Christ today. In His name we pray, Amen. The first time I preached this passage was eight years ago. Cody Devers had put together a preaching conference going through the book of Philippians. Whenever he was still at Velma, some of you were members there whenever I preached this the first time. 
And whenever Cody gave my, me my assignment, like I said, there were, he was going through the book of Philippians. I think a couple ministers each night would preach uh, a sermon and going through the book of Philippians. Whenever I received my assignment, my first thought was, really, Cody? Out of all the passages in Philippians, you give me this one. There was a lot of pride involved therein. To go back to verse 14, I was grumbling (laughs) because of an unspoken dispute with my brother who should have given me a glorious passage like 2, 5 through 11 concerning the humiliation and exaltation of our Lord. Compared to Paul's exclamation, to live as Christ and to die as gain, 121. Or those encompassing commands that we've come to again and again. Live as heavenly citizens, worthy of the gospel of Christ, 127. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, 212. And especially in light of that glorious passage I just mentioned in 2, 5 through 11 concerning the humiliation and exaltation of our Lord. In comparison to all of that, this passage just seems mundane, plain, humble. In Gordon Fee, I found both confirmation and rebuke. After the exalted language of the Christ story in 2, 6 through 11... And the striking metaphors in 2, 14 through 18, by which this was applied to the Philippian situation, it's, it is easy to view this material as mundane, which in a sense it is, and to neglect it as of little import, which it is not. Frank Thielman was easier on my conscience, but he also provoked intrigue. After the theologically rich language of 2, 5 through 18, we're surprised to encounter two paragraphs whose primary purpose, primary concern, seems to be the travel plans of Paul and his co-workers. Why would Paul include such mundane information at this point in his letter? Why? Now there's curiosity. Why? Always ask why, saints. Sometimes you ask it sinfully, but learn the right way at least to ask why of of the text you're picking up. This is the kind of material that you would expect Paul to go into at the conclusion of one of his letters. And here it is in the middle. Why? Some have speculated that Paul did intend to close the letter at this point. Thus, you read in 3 and verse 1, Finally, my brothers... Others have speculated that what this is indicating is that we have here two letters that have been collated, put together. I don't think either one of those worth much. The first clue that this isn't haphazard is invisible to you in the English Standard translation. The New American Standard has, but, I hope, And the Lord Jesus to send Timothy or the new King James. Again, but I trust 
and the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. Timothy. So there's a connection between what Paul is speaking of in all these travel plans and what he's already told the Philippians. What is it? Paul has just spoken of the possibility of his being poured out, his death, 2.17. Backing up in 2.12, he speaks about whether or not he's present or absent concerning their obedience, which leads you back to 127 where he called for them to live worthy of the gospel, whether or not he's present or absent. You find the roots of all these expressions back in chapter 1 and verses 12 through 26 where Paul says he expects to be released from prison. But he's prepared to die if that not be the case. He doesn't, there's no kind of middle option in between there. Live and be released Die for the cause of Christ. But the thing is, is that the only connection between what Paul is dealing with in these verses and what he's said? I believe it'll become plain as we go through our text that 2, 19 through 30 relate not only to Paul's being present or absent, but they relate to everything Paul has conveyed to them in light of his possible presence or absence among them. What you see here is that very apex of theological reflection that Paul came to in 2, 5 through 11, concerning the humiliation and exaltation of the Lord, which came about because of illustrating the exhortation he's given them to have the mind of Christ. What you will see is that the apex of theological reflection Paul came to is now brought down and embodied by these men in this text. Here we have high theology brought down. Walking, breathing. It's brought down and it's the kind of down God lifts This is not a humble text. This is is a humbling text. And should you be humbled by it, made humble by it, conformed to Christ in this way, you will be lifted up. Here, I pray we will see the mundane with new eyes. We'll see the heavenly mundane. Paul has a hope, verse 19. His hope is a plan, I hope, in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Paul has a hope, his hope is a plan, and that his plan is a hope tells you that Paul plans humbly. Just as there was a kind of humility as Paul expressed concerning his knowing in 119 and his confidence in 125 about his expected release, there was a kind of humility in the way he, he expressed those things. There's a humility in this hoping here, this planning. There is the blessed hope 
of which Paul is absolutely certain. And the blessed hope concerns God's plans. And often whenever Paul speaks of hope, that's what he's speaking of. But there are other times whenever he speaks of hoping as if he's just hoping. And those concern Paul's plans. Saints, plan and plan humbly. Don't think that humility excludes planning. I want to be humble so you don't plan. And don't exclude humility from your planning. Plan and plan humbly. Proverbs 1, 3, and 9 are worthy of reflection on striking this balance. The plans of the heart belong to man. But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Commit your work to Yahweh and your plans will be established. The heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh establishes his steps. If you're wondering what this look like, looks like, go to Acts 16 and see how Paul arrived at Philippi in the first place. He knew that God's plan was for him to be a carrier of the gospel to the Gentiles. He knew that. That was God's plan. And so his plan was to go into Asia. But he was prevented. And so then he plans to go into Bithynia. And he's prevented. Again, forbidden, we're told. And that's whenever he receives what we refer to as the Macedonian call. Philippi being a chief city, we're told, of Macedonia. That's how he arrived there. Paul planned, but he planned humbly. And he was sure of God's plan, and that's why he planned, but he planned humbly. Paul's hope here is to send Timothy soon. Why soon? Why not now? And there are two reasons that I see in our text. One of them is explicit and one of them is implicit. The explicit reason you get in verse 23, where Paul states the plan, the hope again. I hope therefore to send him just as soon and now the first reason, as soon as I see how it goes, will go with me. The implicit reason is found in why we are told Timothy is sent. We're given two reasons why in our text. Verse 19, so that. And then another one in verse 20, for. But the first reason, so we have two reasons answering why. But the first reason is telling you why Timothy is sent. So that. And the second reason is telling you why Timothy is sent. Verse 20. The first reason concerns the mission. And the second reason concerns the missionary. What is Timothy being sent to do? And why am I sending Timothy to do it? And so the first reason, why is Timothy sent And as we're looking at this, I want you to see that we're going to unearth in this 
why Timothy is sent soon rather than right now. He's sent so that Paul may be cheered by news of the Philippian church. Ponder that. Epaphroditus has just come with a gift from the Philippians for Paul, brought it to Paul. He's conveyed to Paul something of the state of the church at Philippi, which is being reflected in this letter. It's why Paul is saying the things that he's saying. So Paul has recently received news. It's true. Epaphroditus has been sick. He's recovered. Some time has elapsed. So Paul wants more recent news, but think of what recent news means. He's, Tim, he's going to send Timothy, he's going to send Timothy soon so that Timothy can bring him news that will, would cheer him. Paul is not after a live feed here. It's not as if Timothy would get down there and then they'd FaceTime. Paul is not after news Real-time news here. Months would have elapsed once again once Paul receives news of the Philippians. But something will have changed between what Paul knows now from Epaphroditus and what he'll know later from Timothy. What will have changed? And, and the answer is as plain as the nose on your face, and that's why you overlook it. What will have changed? And this is getting to that implicit reason of why Timothy is sent soon rather than right now. What's the answer? They're reading it. I'm going to send Timothy to you soon. They're reading the answer why it's soon. Because in between what Paul has heard from Epaphroditus... And what he'll hear from Timothy is that the Philippians will have read this apostolic letter. And the news he hopes to be cheered by concerns their reception of this letter. Paul has said that he prays for them with joy, rejoicing because of their partnership in the gospel, 1 and verse 3. He said in 1.6 that he's certain that God will bring to completion the work that he's begun in them. He said that he wants to be with them for their progress and joy in the faith. And related to that, he's commanded them to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. And he wants to do this so that whether he is present or whether he's absent, he might hear. Do you see it now? What's the news he's wanting to hear from Timothy? It's what he spoke of in 127. He wants to hear that they're standing firm with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's called them not to grumble and dispute, but to rejoice even if he is poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice of their faith. You see what Paul hopes to be cheered by is that they are, as they've obeyed, whether he's present or absent, that they are working out their salvation with fear and trembling, 2.12. 
1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 6 is informative for how Paul would send Timothy out on these kind of missions. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So that, uh, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we, were, we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. And he continues on. But you, you see the point now, do you not? Here, Paul plans to send Timothy soon. And soon means following their reception of this letter that he might know the effects of this letter upon their soul and be cheered by their joy and progress in the faith as they're living worthy of the gospel of Christ, working out their salvation with fear and trembling, not grumbling but rejoicing, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Dear saints, every time we gather, it should be with the hope to be cheered by news of what the Word of God has accomplished in our souls since last we met. And it should be with the expectation that God would so work by His Word once again, that when we gather, after this gathering, we would be cheered by news of what He's done, what our God has done. Cheer one another with news of your progress and joy in the faith of Christ. Now that is why Timothy is sent. But why does Paul send Timothy? Verses 20 through 22. And do you see that in both instances, both Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul labors heavily more concerning the men than he does the mission. He spends more time telling the Philippians about who he's sending, then why he's sending them. And what's dumbfounding about this is that they know these men. Paul picked up Timothy Timothy in Lystra just prior to the Macedonian call. So as far as Timothy's laboring alongside Paul in the gospel, the Philippians have known Timothy longer than anyone. And he spends so much time commending him. 
And Epaphroditus was sent by them to Paul. Why so much time on the character of these men? Why relates to what Paul has been telling them. These men embody the theology. They are examples of the exhortations that Paul has been laying before the Philippians in this letter. They exemplify the ethics that Paul has exhorted so far. Paul says he has no one like Timothy, verse 20, who will be genuinely concerned for their welfare. He he does not seek his own interest, he seeks the interest of Christ, verse 20. Remember earlier, Paul laid out this contrast between two people who are proclaiming the gospel, the true gospel, not a false gospel and a true gospel, but two kinds of people who are proclaiming the true gospel, 1, 15 through 17. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely. Timothy, genuinely. These men, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. You see, Timothy models what Paul admonished in 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition. Or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And you see what Paul has made parallel here with Timothy. Timothy doesn't seek his own welfare. He doesn't concern himself with his own interest. What does he concern himself with? With their welfare and with the interest of Christ. And what becomes plain in this is that Paul's concern for them doesn't terminate on them. Paul's concern for them is a concern for Christ's. Church, the interest of Christ. The Philippians are not supreme in Timothy's affections. Christ is. If the Philippians were supreme, Timothy could not seek their welfare. He would not be seeking what was best for them because he would be making a God out of them. But he seeks Christ's interest. Christ's bride. Once again, we see here, as we've encountered in Philippians time and again, that our partnership, our fellowship is a fellowship in the gospel. That true unity as we know it in the body of Christ happens around the gospel, striving for the gospel, holding up the gospel, being of one mind as it concerns the matters of the gospel in Christ's church. Now again, why does Paul send Timothy? They know why. Verse 22, they know why. His proven worth. The single word in the original language that you have translated by the two, proven worth, is the same word that we have in Romans 5 and verse 4, translated there as character. And the idea of provenness is still apparent in Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. How has Timothy's character been proven? Well, he labors alongside Paul as a father with a son. 
And here is where our cultural lenses really obscure what's communicated by this language in the ancient world. We sentimentalize this. Father working alongside a son. We miss the magnitude of what Paul is expressing here. Today we conceive of labor, work, as something that happened outside the household. Whereas in the ancient world, labor and work were critical to understanding what a household was. C.R. Wiley does an excellent job illuminating this in his little dynamite book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos. How's that for a title? And he writes there, A household was an economy. The etymology of that word, economy, tells a story. It's derived from two Greek words, oikos, meaning house, and nomos, meaning law. An economy was the law of the house. It directed the labors of its members towards their common good. It's what kept people working together. Household economies were based on some productive enterprise, usually farming or a trade. Sometimes they were subsistence economies where people eked out a living. Other times they produced goods for the market. Either way, in the pre-modern world, households were nearly the only thing going. They produced food, clothing, and nearly everything else worth having. And on top of that, they were social welfare agencies, educating the young, caring for the elderly. People depended on them for almost everything. Today, we largely think of our homes as recreation centers. That's because the Industrial Revolution, in the, in the Industrial Revolution, most of the productive economy moved out of the house. Because of this, some people have wondered, just what is a father for? You see, this image has to do more so with the work than on a kind of sentimental bond between Paul and Timothy. The nature of how they approach the work and they work together. This is not about a school project or home maintenance. Timothy is laboring beside Paul. Not... Having this image of an economy, that's what a household is. Timothy, you're told, is laboring beside Paul, not as a day worker, not as a hired hand. He's laboring beside Paul, not as a slave, not as a servant. He's laboring with Paul as a son alongside a father. As one who is heir, as one who will take up the mantle, as one whose identity is just as much invested in this, as one who understands that this work and this household doesn't even have to do just with that immediate biological family, but a much larger structure of other persons that are involved in the household that depend upon that family and what that family does, you see. The nature of this is brought out, and it's again obscured by the translation you have. It's a good translation, it's just that there's depth to the language that can't be conveyed all at once. Whenever Paul says, I have no one like him, there's a nuance of that that's brought out 
in the New American Standard that says, I have no one else of kindred spirit. Or again, the New King James here, I have no one like-minded. Paul is saying, as I'm laboring alongside of Timothy, he has my ethos, my work ethic, my concern, my, my diligence. And the way I believe that's what is meant there is that he seeks Christ's interest. He's concerned for the bride of Christ. And the consequence of all this is then, therefore, verse 23, Paul hopes to send Timothy as soon as he knows how it will go with him. And what Paul is saying here, be careful, Paul is not saying, I hope to send Timothy to you, depending on how it goes with me. That's not what Paul says. It's simply that the nature of how Timothy is going to be sent will be altered depending on how it goes with Paul. Well, these are my final words. This is it. That would determine how Timothy is being sent. Or, I'm sending Timothy to you now. And I will follow shortly. The high theology you see of 5 through 11 is brought down here and embodied. And it's going to visit the Philippians. Paul has commanded them to have the mind of Christ. What does the mind of Christ look like when it's had by someone? He's sending them examples. Yes, immediately whenever Paul says, what does the mind of Christ look like? He speaks of Christ. And that's where our mind should go. But don't fail to see that the mind of Christ being had by one of Christ's saints is embodied, enfleshed, modeled for you here. Timothy believes in the humiliation and exaltation of our Lord, and he believes in it for the church. He believes in it in such a way that it comes out his mouth, it comes out his hands, and it comes out his feet. Douglas Wilson has said that theology comes out your fingertips, and whatever comes out your fingertips is your theology. Timothy believes in the humiliation and exaltation of our Lord. Timothy believes in practical theology. Theology that's practiced. And an unpracticed theology is one that you own with your lips but deny with your hands. He believes in embodied theology. He doesn't try to be Christ. That would be heretical. Timothy can't atone, but he does try to be like Christ. Orthodoxy, right belief, must lead to orthopraxy or something is messed up. And what's messed up is us. If the teaching is good and the living is bad, the problem isn't the teaching. So, saints... Work out your salvation. Get to know your salvation and work it out. Live as citizens worthy of the gospel. Learn something of the gospel. And then mortify your flesh and vivify the new man so that your life befits the gospel by which you've been redeemed. 
Epaphroditus now. Verses 25 through 30. Whereas Paul hopes to send Timothy soon, he aims to send Epaphroditus now. Who is Epaphroditus? In relation to Paul, he's a brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, verse 25. The Christian life is one of work and war. Paul has sweat and he has bled with Timothy in the work of the gospel and the fight of the faith. In relation to the Philippians, Epaphroditus is their messenger and their minister. He is the one who brought their gift to Paul. 4.18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Epaphroditus brought the Philippians' gift to Paul. Do you not see here that it is almost a certainty that Epaphroditus is the one who brought Paul's letter now to the Philippians. They're reading it, and they're saying, and and Paul is telling them, I thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you now. Doesn't make much sense, unless this letter and Epaphroditus arrive at the same time. Why does Paul think it necessary? Well, because Epaphroditus has been distressed. Why is Epaphroditus distressed? He's distressed because the Philippians have found out he was distressed with an illness. And now he knows that they're distressed because of his distress. Why does it bother him that the Philippians have learned that he's been sick and they're concerned for him? Shouldn't that warm his heart? Well, Epaphroditus was one with the Philippians in their concern and love for Paul and the cause of Christ. And that's what Epaphroditus was about. He didn't take up that work so everyone would be looking at Epaphroditus. He took up that work because everyone was looking at Paul. And now he arrives having brought the gift to Paul and their concern is switched from Paul to Epaphroditus and that was nothing about what he was about, you see. He doesn't want the attention. He wanted it to be on Paul, the cause of Christ, the gospel. This is a man who was so sick, he was at death's door. But God had mercy on him, we're told, verse 27. And so in light of all this, Paul comes to two conclusions. Again, verse 28, therefore. Verse 29, so. The first conclusion concerns Paul's action. The second conclusion concerns the Philippians' action. Therefore, Paul intends to send him. He's more eager to send him, that they may delight at Epaphroditus' being with them again, and that Paul may be less anxious. Now, why is Paul anxious? Well, he knows of their mutual concern from one another, and he doesn't want to be in between it. See, now Paul is distressed. Why is Paul distressed? Because of their distress. He does not want to hinder them in their love and concern for one another. The second conclusion concerns the Philippians' action, 29 through 30. He calls for them to receive Epaphroditus with joy and honor him because he nearly died for the work of Christ, completing what was lacking in their service. He's, just, he's not reproving them. He's just saying, you wanted to minister to me and he's the one who brought your gift here. 
You notice how Paul's itinerary isn't chronological here. Why is that? We're not told, but I can only speculate that the reason is that Epaphroditus' modeling of what Paul has been speaking of is the more climactic example. He nearly died in service. Paul has called for them to have the mind of Christ. He then speaks of the mind of Christ in his humiliation. And being caught up in that, he goes into Christ's exaltation. And now Epaphroditus has modeled the humiliation of our Lord. And he calls for them to model God's exaltation of someone who would so humble themselves. Honor such men. Honor such men. You know God will. Whenever you see someone who's Christ-like in their humility, then be God-like and honor such men. Ask yourself, how many models does Paul set before us in our text? Well, of course, there's Timothy and Epaphroditus. But have you also noticed that Paul is modeling the very thing he's commending in these men? He's not demonstrating a concern for himself. But his interests are the interest of Christ and his bride. And so whenever he writes in 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And whenever he says in 4.9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And can you see the harmony of all this? The very thing Paul is exhorting in this letter, he's actually demonstrating in this letter. And what it's conveying to them. There are three models now, but don't stop. Don't forget the model of all the models. There are many models, but there's only one mold. These are men who have the mind of Christ. Without regeneration in Christ, without unity, To Christ. Union with Christ. Without understanding that to live is Christ. Any attempted imitation of Epaphroditus or Timothy or Paul on your part will not only be in vain... It will be blasphemous. Whenever you see someone worthy of imitation, make sure that your wanting to be like them is ultimately a wanting to be like Christ. Otherwise, it is vain 
and blasphemous. Perhaps some of you see a great man and you want to be like that great man. And what all that demonstrates is nothing of the spirit of Timothy or Epaphroditus or Paul because you're really concerned about you. And if that case, if you see your sin in light of this passage, confess with your mouth Jesus is Savior. Bow before Him as Lord. And you will be saved. And your eyes will be so fixated on Christ that everything you come to truly appreciate and love about others will be what is seen of Christ in them. Christ is supreme. Honor men, but worship Christ. And in the very honoring of those men, may it be an expression of worshiping Christ. As the Philippians were reading this letter, they had Epaphroditus in their now. In hopes of having Timothy Soon. And Paul, shortly. But they had Christ, always, and in all. Patrick of Ireland is reputed to be the author of this prayer. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ In me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lay down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. That is something of what Paul is calling for and modeling in our text. For each of us to have the mind of Christ so that whenever we gather and we look around, what we see is embodied theology. We see the humility of our Lord. We see Christ about us. Saints, God has sent you many models. And He sent you out to be one. The lesson is put before you in ink And in blood, learn it. Live as heavenly citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Standing firm in one spirit. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Holy Father, enthrall us with Christ and conform us to His image and put in us a heart that is about the interest of Christ, about the welfare of His church and His people, His bride, and that would see them have the mind of Christ. And all of this so that every knee and tongue before that great day But we would know something of it here and now. That we would be bowing before Jesus in worship. Confessing Him. All to Your glory. In the strong name of Your Son we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon audio from Meridian Church. Please feel free to share this resource with others. We only ask that you do not alter the content in any way. Again, you can find more resources at meridianchurch.com.